It's Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, welcome to our accidental breakfast episode. First, how did orange juice become our go-to breakfast beverage of choice? Plus, Waffle House's in-house record label. And someone's been eating their Wheaties. How major sports tournaments are using AI to improve the game and the fan experience. Okay, I sort of broke with the theme on that last one. But nonetheless, here is some cool stuff for your ride home. Every cereal commercial shows a glass of it laid out on a table alongside a slice of toast and a dish of fruit as a part of a balanced breakfast. One brand recognized its presence on the breakfast table as so unquestionable, they created a toothpaste that wouldn't ruin the taste of it if you drank it right after brushing your teeth. Whether with pulp, added calcium, or a heavy pour of Prosecco, orange juice has been a staple of the Western breakfast for as long as any of us have been alive. But its inclusion as a go-to breakfast beverage is still relatively recent, at least in the history of the meal. And it may not surprise you to hear, its ubiquitous presence can be traced back to creative marketing agencies in the early 20th century. In the first few decades of the 20th century, while oranges themselves were quite popular, the only ways to get orange juice were to squeeze it yourself or buy it in a can. But canned orange juice, boiled and left on a shelf for weeks, was, as you might imagine, not too tasty, especially compared to juice that was freshly squeezed in your own kitchen. And according to historian Alyssa Hamilton, in 1930, only about a teaspoon of canned orange juice was consumed per person in the United States, compared to almost 19 pounds of straight-up oranges per person. So the cans weren't really selling. The first tide to change had to do with health-oriented marketing, a buzzy, lucrative market for hacks, hucksters, and pseudoscience experimentalists around the turn of the century. This is around the same era we got cornflakes from John Harvey Kellogg's intentionally bland and abstinence-encouraging food lab. But in the 1920s, it was all about vitamins. Advertisers, scientists, and the government alike warned about the ills of a vitamin-deficient diet. Biochemist Elmer McCollum went one step further, however, and stoked widespread fear about a condition called acidosis. A real condition marked by the presence of too much acid in the bloodstream. McCollum and others blew it out of proportion in the 20s, and also claimed it could be cured by eating lots of citrus fruit and lettuce. And while that might sound counterintuitive at first, orange juice and other citrus does actually turn into alkaline in the stomach, which decreases the acid in your stomach, leading to a better pH balance. So McCollum sort of got that right, but it got out of hand pretty quickly. Citrus producers and their advertisers had a field day inventing symptoms of untreated acidosis and saying that you could eat as many oranges as you wanted to cure it. A 2014 Atlantic article dug up a booklet about acidosis produced by Sunkist at the time that featured illustrations of people suffering from it, with captions like, quote, Estelle seemed to lack vitality, didn't even make an effort to be entertaining, hence she did not attract the men, end quote. But with some orange juice, Estelle and the other fatigued and unappealing individuals in the booklet were suddenly perky, attractive, and ambitious workers. 
But like most fad health scares, it wasn't long before scientists debunked the whole thing and marketers had to go back to their gold standard of vitamin deficiency. That lacking in vitamin C was a real concern, especially for troops abroad during World War II. The military had trouble figuring out a successful way of getting soldiers all of their necessary vitamins and minerals to keep them in fighting shape and prevent scurvy. They tried some lemon crystals, but apparently those tasted so bad that most soldiers skipped over them. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture recruited some scientists to come up with a better orange juice option than the boiled and canned stuff. Quoting BBC Future, Trying to condense orange juice like milk led to memorably bad results. High temperatures burned off its shine and produced a viscous and brownish mixture that lacked fresh flavor, writes Hamilton, the historian. But evaporating some of the water under pressure, mixing a portion of fresh juice back into the concentrate, then freezing it, was more successful. The fresh juice rescued the funky concentrate. It produced something worth drinking, if still a far cry from the undiluted fresh version. End quote. Now, it wouldn't be until a couple of years after the war that they would create true, relatively tasty orange juice concentrate. And though it might have been too late for the war, this new, as the Atlantic puts it, symbol of American innovation and determination arrived just in time to save the orange industry. Now, going back to the early 1900s, most oranges in the U.S. were grown in Florida and California. California produced two types, one of which, Valencia's, were superior for juicing. Florida grew four types, and all of them were good for juicing. But as had happened cyclically throughout the 20th century, come the late 40s, Florida's orange groves were making way too many fruits. They needed somewhere for the oranges to go, and concentrated orange juice for the mass market was the perfect answer. Since the cans of frozen concentrate could sit in store shelves and home freezers for months on end and still be just as good once they were thawed and stirred, there was no worry about the oranges going bad before they got to the consumers. Freed from this worry, the Atlantic notes that Florida's orange processing plants were churning out 10 million gallons of concentrated orange juice by 1949. And people were into it. The BBC recounts a story from writer John McPhee visiting Florida in the early 70s, seeing orange trees everywhere, but failing to find any restaurant that would serve him fresh-squeezed orange juice. Even with the orange trees right there, every place was serving frozen concentrate. A waitress explained to him, quote, Fresh is either too sour or too watery or too something. Frozen is the same every day. People want to know what they're getting. End quote. Familiarity and convenience were absolutely the name of the game in mid-century America. Canned, processed, powdered, concentrated, food underwent some strange evolutions in the 50s. I mean, there's a reason some of the wackier recipes and wackier ideas about what food would be like in the future mostly stem from that decade. With food evolving at such a whiplash pace, who was to say it wouldn't keep innovating with the same velocity? The FDA. That's who. By 1960, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration had started cracking down on a lot of processed foods and their claims about being fresh or natural, especially orange juice. With so many containing huge amounts of water and sugar and very small amounts of orange juice, the FDA began establishing regulations for the nation's now-favorite breakfast drink. And it wouldn't be until the mid-80s that household orange juice would graduate from the canned frozen concentrate to jugs of ready-to-serve, not-from-concentrate varieties. And even though there's still not much about these that are fresh or pure, at least in their early years, they were able to get a lot of mileage out of seeming so 
compared to a chunk of frozen pulp in a can. But, as The Atlantic summarizes from Hamilton, the orange juice historian, quote, Most commercial orange juice is so heavily processed that it would be undrinkable if not for the addition of something called flavor packs. This is the latest technological innovation in the industry's perpetual quest to mimic the simplicity of fresh juice. Oils and essences are extracted from the oranges and then sold to a flavor manufacturer who concocts a carefully composed flavor pack customized to the company's flavor specifications. The juice, which has been patiently sitting in storage, sometimes for more than a year, is then pumped with these packs to restore its aroma and taste, which by this point have been thoroughly annihilated. You're welcome. End quote. In 2014, when that Atlantic article was written, and shortly after Hamilton's book pulled back the curtain a bit on the dark side of orange juice, the industry seemed to be in trouble. Sales had been declining sharply for years, as consumers became more aware of the misleading health benefits and particularly concerned about the huge amount of sugar in orange juice. But fast forward to March 2020, and orange juice sales saw a 70% year-over-year bump as people panic-bought groceries and focused on items associated with good health and immunity. And as the pandemic has gone on, immune-boosting has become the new low-fat or organic buzzword being slapped on anything and everything. While orange juice sales are still declining every year, with the exception of 2020, it doesn't seem like the industry is anywhere close to going extinct. Despite the countless other options on the shelf, orange juice, for most Americans' breakfasts, is still their main squeeze. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. As a massive, lifelong fan of Waffle House, I've prided myself on knowing certain fun facts about the carb-loaded southern breakfast chain, like the Waffle House Index, a metric of disaster readiness and recovery based on whether Waffle House is open, operating on a limited menu, or closed, and which is unofficially used by FEMA in gauging their disaster response. And that the iconic jukeboxes still holding court in every restaurant include Easter eggs, a couple of sunny-side-up songs about Waffle House itself. But what I was shamefully unaware of until today is that it's not just a couple of songs on the jukebox. Waffle House has its own record label. Waffle Records was established in 1984, starting from an idea of the restaurant's co-founder, Joe Rogers Sr., who was apparently pretty discerning about the music he wanted associated with the chain. But if a song managed to get picked, it would be pressed onto a 45 and then distributed to Waffle House jukeboxes around the nation. Nowadays, the tracks are distributed digitally, so it's a bit of an easier process, and there are so many. At least 47, in fact. And just like the many ways you can order your hash browns, smothered, covered, chunked, or diced, the songs come in all varieties, from country and rock to R&B, pop, and gospel. 
And all the songs focus on menu items or the experience of being at a Waffle House. As Shelby White, head of Waffle Records, explained to NPR in 2016, quote, It's not Waffle House, Waffle House, Waffle House over and over again. It's about our food. It's about our people. It's about the things that happen if you just sit in a Waffle House and listen to the conversations around you. We try to represent all of that to some degree in the songs. End quote. Here is a listen to the very first song from 1984 performed by Mary Welch Rogers, Waffle House Family. Just say good morning. Good morning. The Waffle House way. I like it that way. We've got eggs anyway. You like them 24 hours a day. Just come on in. Come on in. You'll see. You'll see. Gonna treat. Other songs from Waffle Records include the oldies There Are Raisins in My Toast, the gospel They're Cooking Up My Order, the folksy ballad Life is Like a Cup of Coffee, a prog rock song from the perspective of a grill operator, and of course, a Christmas single called This Is The Night. It is so hard to pick a favorite, but here is a fun one. It is a pop punk love song about the classic menu item Burt's Chili. Followed her and found the truth In the Waffle House corner booth I said, what's he got that I ain't got? She said, here he comes now and baby he's hot I can't tell you how much those words hurt She said, baby it's only Bert The music videos for Burt's Chili and others are delightfully low budget. One newer song that I am unironically digging right now called Summertime and Lemonade has a line about hopping into a limo and shows a minivan with a single piece of poster board on it and the word limo scrawled on it. Iconic. I think it's gonna be the song of the summer. Now, outside of my personal playlists, the songs aren't going to be topping the charts anytime soon. They don't even get more than 1% of plays on the Waffle House jukeboxes. But that doesn't seem to be the point. For Waffle House, it's about extending the experience and just having fun. Plus, they don't need the Grammys or the Billboard charts. Waffle Records has its own award show. The Waffle House Toonies honors the year's top-played Waffle House jukebox artists and also names a scattered, smothered, and discovered artist of the year. Not someone from the Waffle Records lineup per se, but rather an aspiring artist from somewhere in Waffle Country. Boing Boing notes that last year's winner was Kim Cruz, an R&B artist from Texas whose single Don't You Wanna Go is the newest addition to the Waffle House jukebox. And if you want to listen to all of the delightful, over-easy songs from Waffle House Records, you can explore various tracks at the links in the show notes, which includes Waffle Records' official Spotify and music videos on their main website. Talk about Breakfast of Champions! 
All right, that was actually a terrible segue. This segment is just going to be what it is. So yesterday, I talked about the burgeoning movement to develop sports leagues in space. Today, let's dig into another futuristic-seeming side of sports, how some of the biggest tournaments in the world are deploying artificial intelligence to boost gameplay and viewers' experience. As Wimbledon ramps up for the big finals this weekend, the tournament itself has paired up with IBM for an app that they're hoping will help fans learn more about the sport and about players beyond just the big names. This comes as a result of polling conducted in previous years showing that many people tuned into tennis only during Wimbledon and admitted to not knowing many players beyond the most famous ones. Enter Match Insights with Watson, which uses IBM Watson, the company's AI for business, and gives every single player an IBM Power Index ranking that changes as the tournament goes on. Quoting CNN, The ranking is generated by analyzing athletes' form, performance, and momentum, explains Kevin Farrar, sports partnership leader at IBM UK and Ireland. Because it's updated daily, you can see players to watch, and it can start to identify potential upset alerts, all interesting to the fans, he explains. The idea is to help less initiated fans to find players to follow, developing their own fandom, says Willis. Users can choose to track players and are served up personalized highlights as the tournament progresses, end quote. Watson further predicted the winners of each match this week, displaying the player's likelihood of winning as a percentage point. In addition to factors like previous results between athletes, first serve win percentage, ace frequency, and more, Watson also took into account things like positive and negative media sentiment for the rankings. And how did Watson do with its predictions? about 100% accuracy on day one, but it was downhill from there. Day three saw an unexpected upset, and of course, Watson couldn't account for Rafael Nadal dropping out of the semifinals due to an injury. It is a cool app, though, similar to ones offered by other sports, so if Wimbledon is trying to bring that same fanatic, gamified energy to tennis, I'd say they are on the right track. Meanwhile, FIFA is bringing AI to the pitch for the World Cup this November. They want to make sure there is no debate when it comes to offside calls by refs. Quoting Gizmodo, Here's how it'll work. There will be 12 cameras installed underneath the roof of the stadium to track the ball across the field, as well as 29 data points of each individual player, including all relevant limbs and extremities. The camera will detect the positioning of the ball and the players at a rate of 50 times per second, calculating their exact position on the field. Through the collected data, the new system will provide an automated offside alert to video match officials inside the video operation room on whether or not a player was in an offside position. An offside position is when any part of the player's body is closer to the opposing team's goal line than both the ball and the second-last opposing player, with the last usually being the goalie. End quote. It will still be manually reviewed by match officials before being passed along to the on-field referees. But even cooler, a 3D animation will be generated and broadcast on the screens at the stadium to show a super high-tech replay. And the whole process is expected to take about as long as a standard slow-mo replay. In other words, just a few seconds. FIFA says the 3D animation footage will also be made available to broadcast partners, so anyone watching at home should be able to see it as well. And while this is a very cool step forward, it's not a brand new concept for FIFA. They've employed various forms of virtual and augmented reality in previous tournaments, including the last World Cup in 2018. 
It's also, you know, something that is very cool for the sport and the players, but also a bit of a shiny distraction from the myriad controversies and human rights abuses that have surrounded preparations for the World Cup in Qatar and FIFA in general for years. In other non-breakfast news, Beyoncé has just made music history again. Her single Break My Soul off her upcoming album Renaissance has just moved up to number 7 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts, making her the first woman and only third person ever to have at least 20 top 10 hits as a soloist and 10 or more top 10 hits as a member of a group, having gotten 10 top 10 hits as part of Destiny's Child. The only others in this elite club are Paul McCartney and the late Michael Jackson. You know what they say, it's Beyonce's world and we're just living in it. And in other, other news, don't forget that Tuesday the 12th is the big day. That is when NASA will be releasing the first full-color images from the James Webb Space Telescope. You can watch a live stream of the image release event starting at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time at the NASA link in the show notes, or just hit up pretty much anywhere on the internet shortly after that to see all the images in their mind-shattering glory. But that is it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.